0: This morning we begin a study of the Lord's Prayer. Richard Foster, many of you might know he wrote the well-known book, The Celebration of Discipline, also wrote a book on prayer in which he says this, We today yearn for prayer and hide from prayer. We are attracted to it and repelled by it. We believe prayer is something we should do, even something we want to do, but it seems like a chasm stands between us and actually praying. We experience the agony of prayerlessness. The passage that Sandra just read comes within the larger context of Jesus' most famous sermon, which most of you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we begin this study, I'm going to make an educated guess and just assume that even though we know prayer is something that we should do, even though it's something that we might desire to do, we oftentimes don't do it. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that is. Number one, we just struggle with unplugging in general, getting alone, spending time in solitude and in silence. The average attention span for a human being now is about eight seconds and the average attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds (laughs) and I'm not joking research proves this researchers surveyed 2,000 participants and they studied the brain activity of 112 people using EEGs and they found that since the year 2000 which is roughly the time when the digital revolution really began, that the attention spans of human beings have dropped from 12 seconds to now 8 seconds. So one factor why we don't pray is that we can't sit still with our thoughts. But there's a more theological reason, and that is, if we're really being honest, sometimes we wonder, does prayer actually work? Does it make a difference? God already knows everything that's going to happen. Why should we pray? Thankfully, the Bible does not leave us in the dark on this issue. In fact, Jesus himself, who had perfect communion with God the Father, if you look in the Gospels 44 times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, does Jesus either pray himself Or talk about prayer in the Gospels. If the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, found it necessary to get away and spend time with his Father in prayer, should we not also do likewise? Now, I'm grateful that many of you in this church are actually prayer warriors. That foundation was set not by me, but by Pastor Johnny and Debbie. They were prayer warriors In fact, every Sunday morning, I receive a text message from Johnny, every Sunday, letting me know that he's on his knees praying for me as I proclaim the truth of God's Word. So there is a healthy foundation of praying within this body. So as we work our way through the Lord's Prayer over the next couple of of months, some of this might be... Things that you already know. But for some of you in this room, if you're being honest, there is this sense of my prayer life is really not what I want it to be. And I hope as we study this text, God will create within you or stir up within you a zeal and a fervency and a passion to go before him in prayer. And if you're not a Christian in this room, let me invite you to receive Jesus Christ and have intimacy with your Father through Jesus. Now, as we begin today, the, in, the verse that holds this entire section that we're going to be studying together is actually a verse that we didn't read, verse 1 of chapter 6. So, the whole structure of this passage is Jesus starts with almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, We're not going to address that, even though you should do that. And then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. And all three of those elements are held together by verse 1. It says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So as Jesus is addressing the disciples and the crowds... Think of that verse as the banner, the lens through which we should understand not only what we're going to discuss today, but the Lord's Prayer and then later on, fasting. So, this morning, two primary observations from the text that we need to consider as we begin. Number one, hypocrites receive earthly rewards. And then number two... But godly rewards are always better. Hypocrites receive earthly rewards, but godly rewards are always better. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. Even though we read the Lord's Prayer, we're going to read that every Sunday before I come to preach. But we are going to actually look this morning at verses 5 and 6. Here's what it says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. it. I mean, Christians, non-Christians, if you walk up to somebody and say, I'm praying for you, very rarely is anyone going to be offended. They're probably not going to spit on you. They're probably not going to punch you in the face. Even if they hate God, if you walk up to someone and say, I'm praying for you, generally in our culture, that is going to be well-received. They might say thank you and then under their breath say something else or roll their eyes, but they're going to receive that. But who are we praying to when we say that? That really matters. When we tell someone, I'm praying for you, we're not talking about just some generic little g God floating around in the atmosphere. We're not praying to Allah. We're not praying to Moses. We're not praying to Elijah, David, Solomon, Mary, Peter, James, John, Paul. We're not praying to any of those people. We're praying to Yahweh, the great I Am. Exodus chapter 2 verse 24 illustrates this perfectly. When the Israelites are crying out to God, here's what God says. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. With Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. When we are praying to God, we are praying to the God who established his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, which we just read earlier in our service. And God has remained faithful to that covenant, first initiated with Abraham, passed down to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph... Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Peter, James, John, Paul, and the list keeps going and going and going. This is who we are praying to. The God who came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. This is who our prayers are directed to. Jesus warns the people in this passage not to pray like the hypocrites. Now, we all know what a hypocrite is. It's a person who says something and does the opposite, or they do something and say the opposite. We're not talking here about just this generic form of hypocrisy. Let's go ahead and put all the cards on the table this morning. We're all hypocrites, all right? We all do things that we say we're not going to do, So we all get it. Christians are hypocrites. We're not trying to say that we're not, that we're perfect. That's a very weak argument that non-Christians use to say, well, Christians are hypocrites. They never do what they say they're going to do. We're all admitting this morning. Raise your hand right now, everybody. Raise your left hand. You are a hypocrite. Okay, left, right. Left, right. I'm sorry, I threw it off. Okay, raise your hand if you're a hypocrite this morning. Okay, we're all hypocrites. We get that. No one's saying that we're not. We confess that we're sinners in need of God's grace. But in this passage, Jesus is talking about a very specific type of hypocrite. And that would be a religious hypocrite. Generally speaking, in the Gospels, Jesus butts heads not with lost people, but with the religious elite. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. In fact, Jesus is regularly rebuking those that we would consider the prestigious, religious, knowledgeable, spiritual men and women of his day. This is who he's talking about in this passage. A type of hypocrite who prays one thing but lives their life Another way. Now, in this passage, more than likely it's the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes are the ones who knew the law. The Pharisees had two primary purposes in their sect within Judaism that is, they knew the Torah and they commented orally on the Torah. So the Pharisees are known for what we call the twin pillars of oral tradition and Torah. That's what they believed. Here's what Pharisees would do. They would take a commandment like do not murder. And then they would create additional laws to ensure that if you didn't violate all of the laws around the main law of do not murder, then there would be no way that you would ever commit the command of do not murder. murder. So basically, they built a boundary or a fence around the law. And all of these additional rules and regulations were put in place to ensure that there was no way that they would commit murder because if they followed all of these additional laws, they would never run the risk of violating that one law. And Jesus, in this passage, is encouraging his disciples and the crowds not to pray like the scribes and the Pharisees. How do they pray? Jesus tells us in this passage. They loved to stand in the synagogues and pray on the street corners. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with praying in a worship service, because we do it every Sunday. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with praying on a street corner. It's the intent. It's the mindset, it's the motive behind why you want to pray in those settings. See, the praying was not for intimacy with the Father. Jesus tells us it was for this, that they may be seen by others. Standing in the synagogue was a common practice. This was not unique to the Pharisees. It was a normal posture for Jewish people to stand when they prayed. But praying in the synagogue was not open to everyone. So these Pharisees used it as a badge of honor in some ways, as a way to show off and say, maybe one day you'll be able to pray in the synagogue like I can. Wouldn't it be great one day if you were as spiritual as me and you could stand up before the assembly and offer a prayer? The synagogue was the most important institution within Judaism. It's where Jesus regularly taught. When Paul went from town to town, he always went first to the synagogue. Thus, it was the perfect place for these Pharisees to show off that they were holy, that they were spiritual, that they were super Christians. Of course, we know that they actually weren't. It was a great place for them to use fancy theological language, a great place for them to be extra emotional, maybe even shed a tear and make a point to wipe it off very clearly for all to see. They wanted to be known as the spiritual people in Jesus' day, at least in the synagogue There would be a superficial nod to some sort of real spirituality because you would, in fact, pray in a synagogue. But what about when they went out on the street corners? Jesus makes it very clear. This was for the sole purpose of being seen by other people. Now, again, not all public praying is wrong. But the motive behind why we pray does matter. And you might be able and I might be able to fool a lot of people, but we are not fooling God. He knows exactly the hearts and the intents behind why we choose to pray, how we choose to pray, where we choose to pray, and when we choose to pray. The other day, we were discussing this very passage as a staff, and Nick said something that was very remarkable. I told him I was going to quote him. He said, the marketplace of our day, the street corner of our day, is not really an actual street corner. You know where it is? It's social media. Think about this. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. How many of you have ever seen a picture of somebody posting their Bible on a coffee table with a a cup of coffee next to it? Now, that might be a very intentional way that you are trying to Communicate the truth of the gospel or proclaim Jesus to somebody, but it's also possible that might that might just be a way for you to get validation from other people that you're spiritual Doesn't mean every tweet doesn't mean every Facebook post is that But have we even considered that perhaps Facebook is the street corner of our day? And if Facebook is the street corner, then Twitter is definitely the synagogue If you're on evangelical Twitter, you certainly know that every pastor is arguing and bickering back and forth about primary and secondary and tertiary issues, not because they're actually trying to build up the cause of Jesus Christ, but because they want to win the argument. They want to be famous. They want people to follow them. So we might not struggle in the synagogue or in the street corner, but brothers and sisters, we should check our hearts about what ways we try to show people that we're Christians, which is a good thing, by the way, but with the wrong intent. Thank you, Nick, for that excellent illustration. Now, Jesus is clear in this passage that these hypocrites, they will receive their reward. And let me tell you what that reward is. It is the praise The adoration and the recognition of man. That is the reward. And Jesus is very clear. If that's what these hypocrites are looking for, they're going to get it. There are going to be people that are impressed with them. People that think they're spiritual. People think that they're super theological men. But that's all they really want. They want to be affirmed. They want to be held up as pillars in the community, not because they want to please God, but because they want to please man. The praise of man will, listen to me, the praise of man, it will provide an ego boost in the short term, but it won't last. It's like a drug. When you start getting affirmed, when people start thinking you're great, you begin to act in order to receive more and more affirmation and more and more praise until somewhere along the line it stops being about pleasing God and it becomes about pleasing man. Brothers and sisters, we cannot live for the praise of man. If you're a people pleaser in this room today, which I struggle with as well, we cannot live for the praise of man. There will always be, if we're truly following after Jesus, passionately pursuing him, trying to obey his teachings in the gospels, at some point, you will not be praised by man. Because the values of Jesus and the values of the world do not align. So to an extent... Man will be pleased with you. But when you actually begin to do everything Jesus says in the Gospels, you will stop being praised. You will be ridiculed. You will be persecuted. So, hey, if if people-pleasing is something that you struggle with, like I do, you get on your knees every day and you say, God, help me not to be in the business of praising man, but praising you. So when we pray, let's remember, Jesus is more concerned about the mindset that we bring before him, the motive that we bring before him, than he is anything else. Because these Pharisees and scribes, they didn't care at all about what God thought. It was about what the people that were watching them thought of them. And Jesus says, they will receive their reward. And they did. And they liked it. And many of them were duped into thinking that that meant they were healthy spiritually. When in reality, after reading all of the Gospels, we know that there were not more people that were unhealthy than the Pharisees and the scribes. So let me encourage you with this second point. Godly rewards are always better. Jesus contrasts Standing and praying in the synagogue and in the street corners with going into a private place. He says, but whenever you pray, go into your room. Shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Commentators think that the type of room that Jesus is describing here was a storeroom. Probably the only room within a Palestinian house that had a lock on a door. It would be the equivalent of a broom closet or a linen closet for us today. It's the idea of a place where you're not going to be bothered. A place where people are not going to notice you or see you. Where you can truly get alone with the Lord and be vulnerable with Him and pour out your heart to Him. What is that place for you? Perhaps it's your car. The only moment of sanity is, within, is in your car after the kids have been dropped off, driving to work or to the grocery store or on some other errand. We don't have to be legalistic. You don't actually have to find a closet. It could be a car. It could be your office. It could be a special chair in your bedroom or in your house where you know when you go to this place, it's time to get to work. It's time to get on our knees before the Lord. I have a window that looks into my office, so I have to hide. Get in a chair where no one can see me. So people will think I'm not in the office. Now, most people know that I hide, so they can still get in. But the point is, I don't want people looking at me as they walk in the office praying. I want to get out of view. I want to be able to get on my knees or sit in my chair and pray without distractions, without anybody knowing that's what I'm doing. And I might have to find a new spot now because I've just told you. But we want it to be authentic. We want to be raw and natural and transparent when we go before the Lord in prayer. The true purpose of praying to God in secret is not for the praise of man, but for the pleasure of intimacy with the Father. That's why we do it. The goal of prayer is not to get what we want. It's not to always leave on an emotional high. It's not even necessarily to unload everything off of our chest. The goal of prayer is intimacy with God. Think about this for a moment. Do you realize what prayer is, we get to approach the God of the universe in a conversation. If you knew ahead of time that you were going to be able to spend five minutes with the President of the United States, or a famous celebrity, or your favorite college football coach, you would think long and hard about what you wanted to discuss. You would want to be prepared. You would want to be ready to transition from one topic to the next. And yet, sometimes when we approach God in prayer, we act as if he's less important than the president or some famous celebrity. When we approach our Father in prayer, we are approaching the God who spoke the world into existence who created male and female, who created the sea and dry land in Genesis 1, who established a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 15, who saved his people from Egyptian slavery, Exodus 12, who enabled them to cross the Red Sea, Exodus 14, who gave them the promised land, who crumbled the walls of Jericho, Joshua 6, who slayed the giant Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, who gave wisdom to Solomon, 1 Kings 3, who spared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. Not one hair was singed on their body, nor did they smell like smoke, Daniel 3 tells us. Who brought Lazarus back to life, John 11. Who healed paralyzed people, Mark 2. He removed leprosy from people's body, Matthew chapter 8. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, Mark 6. And he raised Jesus from the dead, Matthew 28. Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. This is who we talk to in prayer. The reward of prayer is that we get to talk to God through Jesus Christ as our mediator. If you were given five minutes alone with the president or a celebrity, I can promise you about 30 seconds in, they're internally thinking, how much longer is this going to last? But when we approach God, he doesn't think that way. Isn't it amazing? Sometimes when, I'm just going to confess, people come to me with their problems. In my flesh, I'm thinking, how much longer is this going to last? But guess what? God doesn't do that. He never tires of hearing from his children. He never tires of our complaints or us casting our burdens upon him. He always delights in hearing from his children. That is who we pray to. But perhaps the most important question from this whole passage, which we haven't even answered yet, is, does God hear our prayers? In one sense, yes, because he's omniscient. And he is aware of all prayers that are brought before him. But in another sense, no. Hear me this morning. In another sense, no. Scripture nowhere says that God responds to the prayers of unbelievers like he responds to the prayer of believers. Now, in his great mercy, he oftentimes might answer the prayer of an unbeliever. Or he might answer it in order to draw them to faith in Christ. But Jesus himself is very clear. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the mediator that gives us access to God. So in a sense, no. No. Jesus does not answer every prayer, which is even more of a reason to communicate and proclaim and yell from the rooftops to those that are not in Christ to repent of their sin and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The intimacy that every human being craves will not be found in a spouse. It will not be found. In relationship with your children, or your friends, or your careers, or your hobbies, or your travel ball teams. You will not find the intimacy that human beings are looking for in any of those avenues. It will only be found in God, through faith in Christ. The reward of prayer is intimacy with God. Christian today, cherish the intimacy that you can have with God. Non-Christian today, receive it through repentance and faith. Let's pray. God, as we approach you in prayer, I confess that I'm guilty of taking it too lightly. Forgive me for that. For those in this room that are Christians, I pray that through our study of this passage, you would spark within us a desire to make sure that we are consistently, faithfully communicating to you in prayer. And for any non-Christians, I pray that even right now, they would come to the realization that they are dead in their sin, and apart from repentance of that sin and faith in Christ, they do not have fellowship with you. And thus, many of their prayers, barring the mercy and grace of God, are not answered. Help us to remember that we don't pray for the praise of man, but so that we can have intimacy with you. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.